<clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and for the opportunity to gather here to kind of discuss the more obscure and darker things of your word, things that we don't normally hear in Sunday school class or Bible studies or behind the pulpit, things that uh, pop culture has taken and run with, but they're not biblically based. And therefore, um, they can't be validated or there's no truth in them. They just kind of lead people astray. But Lord, I know that your word has the answers to every question in this life, has something to say about every subject uh, on this earth. And Lord, we want to delve into your word to understand uh, the supernatural, the paranormal, aliens and ghosts and UFOs and, and uh, cryptozoology, werewolves and fairies and trolls and Loch Ness Monster and all these things that, that, that have a grain of truth to them that's legendary throughout all over the world, through all the different people groups. So if all the world's talking about it, all the world has a version of it, there must be some truth to it. And I think we can find it in the word. So, Lord, help us tonight uh, as we understand your word and we, we delve into it. Give us understanding uh, so we could parse out uh, this stuff regarding aliens and fallen angels and demons and be able to understand it from a biblical perspective, therefore relating it to other people who ask us. Because, you know, more so uh, you know, than people finding out that we're believers, um, they don't really ask us spiritual questions about why we believe what we believe. They usually go straight for the jugular and say, well, what do you think about ghosts? What do you think about UFOs? What do you think about? And so they expect us to know from a biblical perspective. So this is equipping us. So open up our hearts and minds and help us to uh, really know what your word is saying on this. For we ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. One reason we don't have a good handle or a good grip on this whole alien UFO phenomena, uh, the, th the stuff about fallen angels and Nephilim, is because most of our understanding, uh, being in the Gentile Christian circle, is that a lot of the Jewish stuff is not paid attention to. It's put on the shelf, you know, okay, you know, we're past this stuff, we, we're, not, we're, we're Gentiles, we're not Jews, so we don't have to worry about that. The church fathers came along and lessened the importance of the book of Enoch, uh, the book of Jubilees, the book of Jasher, um, and other extra biblical literature that wasn't just important to the Jewish people, but they were important to the first century Christians, to the first century believers. They were books that were held in high esteem and, and, and looked at as historically true. They may not have been canonical as far as uh, the inspiration of God as the scriptures are, but nonetheless they were true. And so we have the opportunity to draw upon these ancient documents as well as things that ancient rabbis have said. We, you know, in the Christian community, we always go to the church fathers, but we can go beyond the church fathers and look at the, the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish sages and help get a better understanding. So tonight we're going to be dealing with fallen angels and demons. And we all know that there was a rebellion in heaven. We know that there was an angelic rebellion, but what most people don't know is that they were actually three. We think that there's one. And, you know, we've been taught by the church fathers and taught by Christendom that there was just one rebellion and it's all lumped in one thing. But in reality, there's possibly three different 
uh, angelic or heavenly rebellions. And we're going to be talking about that. And once we understand these three different rebellions, as the Jewish sages have pointed out, we can probably better understand and get a better handle on this issue regarding fallen angels and demons. And a lot of people lump those in the same category. But fallen angels is something that's totally different from demons. They're not the same. And uh, so the word angel is the Hebrew word malach, and it means messenger. So that is really the primary occupational job description of an angel, is an angel is a messenger of God. God says, you go, and the angel goes. God says, you say this, the angel says, you know, the angel goes and says whatever God, you know, relays the message of God. And uh, so <clears throat> that's what an angel is. Now, you also have the heavenly creatures or the heavenly beasts, you know, the ones that Ezekiel talks about and the ones that's talked about in Revelation with the ones that have six wings or four wings and has a face of an ox or a face of a lion or the face of an eagle or the face of a man. These aren't angels. These are something different. These are heavenly beings. These are heavenly creatures. They're not in the same category as quote unquote angels, but oftentimes you get them lumped in. For instance, uh, we call Satan a fallen angel, but this, the scriptures call him a cherub. The scripture calls him a seraph, which was a classification of heavenly creatures, of heavenly beasts that had wings. If you research the scriptures and you just talk about regular run-of-the-mill everyday angels, they don't have wings. But yet in popular culture, that's all we see is angels having wings. That's how we identify them as an angel. Yeah. Where do gargoyles fit in this? I think, well, I'm not sure because that's more of a, a gothic medieval kind of thing, but I, I would. satanic thing. Well, I would, I mean, I'd say that they are yeah. because they, they, they take on a grotesque, you know, appearance. And, you know, I think maybe they might, I'd have to do research on that, but they might be lumped up uh, with demons or representor, representatory of demons or fallen angels. I'm sorry to get off topic here, but that kind of troubles me because my. First daughter, Amy, her husband, uh -huh. her first husband, uh, who was a Christian, um, he, I wouldn't say he idolized him, but he had this thing for gargoyles. Yeah. And I remember I had bought him a gargoyle for his birthday. Well, gargoyles grace the, uh, the Church of Notre Dame. I don't know why. They, they say that they're the guardians of the church, but I'm thinking that's kind of contradictory. Like, why would you? And I mean, if you look at some of these sculptures that are around the Church of Notre Dame, some of them are not only grotesque, but a little perverted. Yeah. If you do your, it's, and it makes no sense. Yeah. It makes no sense. Okay. Sorry, no, that's all right. So, you know, angels don't have wings. Uh, it's the Greek and Roman culture that has influenced our pop culture that have given angels wings. So that's why we always portray them with wings and halos, because that's how we identify them. But in the scriptures, whenever an angel shows up, most of the time, people don't know if they're an angel or not. They think they're a regular human being until something supernatural happens or, you know, until, you know, they perform a miracle or something of that nature. Um, they think that it's just a regular person. They just think it's a man. Um, like the angels that accompanied God when he visited Abraham after his circumcision. They just looked like men. They didn't have their wings folded. Mm -hmm. Abraham didn't say angels came. It said they were three men. And then he called one of them by the name of Yahweh, by God's name. And so the other two were his messengers that were sent to Sodom and Gomorrah. So throughout scripture, angels appear all the time without wings, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Now, the heavenly creatures, on the other hand, uh, there are classified as cherubim and seraphim, which they're mostly throne guardians. Mm -hmm. They're considered throne guardians of God. They do appear with wings, sometimes four wings, sometimes six wings. Uh, and a lot of times they're lumped in as angels and they're called angels. And I guess in a loose sense of the word, they could be called angels because they're still God's messengers, but they're not angels in the sense that we think about angels. But do, do fairies fall in that category too, or are they from Satan? Um, that, that's for another lesson. Okay. <laughs> that's for another lesson. We're going to stick with any, we're going to stick, stick on topic. Um, all right. Like for, for instance, uh, I brought this up before and I'll just bring it up again. You, you have the four living creatures, one with the face of an ox, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of a man, one with the face of an eagle. Now, I believe that there was originally five, and I believe Lucifer, Hillel, a.k.a. Satan, was the, the, the leader of those four. And they were all considered throne guardians, and Satan had the appearance of a snake. He had the appearance of a reptile. And he still had he still uses that persona, that reptilian persona. And so when he was booted out of heaven, the, the five living creatures became four living creatures because if they were if their responsibility was throne guardians, even though God doesn't need throne guardians, that's what they were deemed and that's what their job description says in regards to cherubim and seraphim, uh, you had the five living creatures representing all of the kingdoms on earth besides the kingdom of the ocean. Because there's none that, that represent a fish or none represent any aquatic. Because the aquatic is, you know, whatever is on earth is mirrored in heaven. And so whatever is mirrored in the ocean is mirrored on land. So like a spider, a tarantula, a, a, a tarantula is basically a crab. They're, they're the same thing. Um, one thing that convinced me of this is I saw a documentary of this guy uh, dealing with Amazonian tribes. And uh, they were catching tarantulas and roasting them, and the guy tried it, and he said it tasted like crab. Well, it makes sense to me. Uh, for instance, the cockroach, the sea equivalent of a cockroach is a shrimp. They're the same thing, serve the same purpose. So whatever is mirrored uh, on earth is mirrored in, in, in the ocean. So the ocean represents the supernatural realm. The ocean represents the heavenly realm. So that's why there's nothing representative in heaven of things in the ocean. Noah didn't take fish on the ark, you know, they, he didn't need to, right? Uh, so you, you had the, the uh, reptiles and amphibians, which was represented by, by Satan at that time because he was called a, a flaming serpent, a seraph. That's why he appeared as a serpent in the garden to deceive Eve. So you have the ox, which represents all livestock. You have the lion, which represents all of the uh, wild animals. Uh, you have the eagle, which represents all of avian life. And then you have the one who looks like a man, which represents mankind. So these were the throne guardians. And when you see a parade of somebody in authority, there's usually one at each corner of that individual and one in the front leading the way. And Satan was the one that led the way. He was also <laughs> the anointed cherub. He was basically heaven's praise and worship leader yeah. is basically what he was. And uh, when he got booted out, the five living creatures became four living creatures. And uh, so it kind of got a little off track there. But let's get back to angels. In Job chapter 1 verse 6 and Job chapter 2 verse 1, it talks about these angels and they call them the Beneha Elohim. They call them, excuse me, the sons of God. So not until the New Testament 
But all through the Old Testament, whenever you hear sons of God, it's always referring to angels. The Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. And so it talks about in Job 1 and 2 where the angels, the Beneha Elohim, presented themselves before God for some sort of council meeting, some sort of maybe inspection, you know, like a gathering of the troops and inspecting the troops or what have you. And it says that Satan was among them. You know, that he was, the when the roll call was given, he was there too. And then he started accusing Job, right? And uh, so we know all about that. All right. So it says, one day the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, which means the adversary, the enemy, also came with them. And Job 38.7, angels are, um, they have different idioms in the scriptures. Sometimes they're called fiery stones. Sometimes they're called mountains. Sometimes they're called stars. And uh, Jude talks about the wandering stars. And that is talking, that is referring to the fallen angels. And then at one point, Jesus actually talks about one of the heavenly rebellions when Satan was cast out. And Jesus himself said, I, I was there. I saw Satan fall like lightning. So there again, Satan, when he fell, was compared to a falling star, to a meteorite, to, to a comet or something of that nature where it looked like he fell from heaven. And so in Job 38, 7, it says, While the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, shouted for joy. And so when in Revelation, where it talks about the angel of the church of whatever, you know, uh, I believe it's more talking about the congregational leader, which is the, the messenger <laughs> to the church uh, anointed by God. But, you know, uh, he talks about the seven stars within his hand representing the, the seven angels and, and things like this. So angels sometimes are equated with stars. So now let's talk about these three different rebellions that take place, these three different heavenly rebellions. The first of all is the one that we know best that takes place in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, there seems to be a gap between 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. Standalone sentence, standalone paragraph, it's one subject. So when God creates things, he creates things perfectly. He creates things in order. He creates things fully functioning. But then it says, verse 2, now, as if sometime in the future, sometime after verse 1, now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a hint here, and it's also talked about, I, I, I have a whole other teaching on this, and if you go, uh, you could probably find it. I talk about the pre-edemic earth, and there's uh, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, all uh, lend credence to this pre-edemic earth, that there was this pre-edemic earth that God started things out and everything was fine. Satan fell between verse one and two, and he corrupted the pre-Adamite race, whoever they were. We have no record of them. We don't really know who they are. It's not important because history is not about them. It's about us right now. So they're kind of, you know, it's like, they're not even worth mentioning. But it's hinted about through, throughout Scripture that there was this pre-edemic earth, this pre-edemic race. Satan fell between verses 1 and 2 and corrupted them. And what, what happens when things get corrupted? God wipes the slate clean, and he starts all over. Now, this would, this would lend credence to God's own laws. 
because in in, Deut in the book of Deuteronomy, book of Leviticus, the five books of Moses, it talks about if something is unclean, you attempt to purify it twice with water. And if it can't be purified twice with water, then you purify it with fire. So if there was a pre-edemic flood, there was a pre-edemic race, it was wiped out the first time. It was cleansed the first time because it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Formless and empty means chaos. Tohu bohu, chaos and destruction in the Hebrew. Now the earth was chaos and destruction. When did ever God create chaos? When did he ever create destruction? God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos. Uh, so the earth was formless and empty. It was chaos and destruction. Darkness says God is light. God wouldn't create darkness. He wouldn't create chaos. He wouldn't create destruction. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. So we have this, uh, this, this fall of Satan between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And it's kind of alluded to a little bit in the prophet Isaiah. Let me find Isaiah here. So Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, dealing with verse, starting with verse 12. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. Ah, there's the word star again. And this word star is referring to Satan, <laughs> a heavenly angelic being. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. There's the word stars again in reference to angels. He wanted to rule all the angelic race. I will set my throne above the stars of God, above my peers, above other created beings like myself. I will sit on the mount uh, of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. Uh, I will ascend the highest cloud and I will make myself like the most high. Satan couldn't say I will become the most high. It's impossible. He's a created being. He's not eternal. He doesn't have an eternal past. He has a created moment and he has an eternal future. So he says, I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol. You will be brought down to the grave. This is a hint that, you know, where, where we get this Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny kind of imagery of the angel and the devil, the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other, angels in heaven on a cloud, and the devil underground in this fiery hell under the earth. Well, that's what Sheol is. He became the god of the underworld, so to speak, the lowercase g. But you will be brought down to Sheol in the depths, in the deepest regions of the pit. So in Revelation, we see the final end of Satan, the, 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 the formerly anointed cherub, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, Satan. See, Satan goes by many names, star, mountain, dragon. The, the dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. <coughs> So the dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, which means enemy or adversary, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to the earth. 
So when he was cast out of heaven, he fell to this pre-Adamic earth and began corrupting God's creation and began to corrupt the pre-Adamic people, whoever they, whoever they were, and his angels with him. Then I heard a voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ is now come. All right, so we'll just kind of stop right there. So this is talking about the, the first... <coughs> Uh, the first um, rebellion, which was Satan himself being cast out of heaven. So in Genesis uh, 1, it talks about the pre-Adamic corruption and that flood. Then there is uh, a recreation. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So what does God do after this darkness, destruction, and chaos? He starts recreating the world. He doesn't create the world brand new because the world was already there. The world was there in the beginning. In the beginning, when everything started, God created the heavens and the earth. It was already there. But somehow, someway, the earth became destroyed and chaotic, and it was just a glob of water. It was a flood. So the rest of Genesis 1 talks about how God restored order to this chaotic earth, this pre-Adamic earth that was, that was fallen, that was in chaos, that was destroyed. He brought order to it by bringing light land, vegetation, animals, and eventually human beings. So it was a recreation, and it took him six days to do that. He could have done it in one day, but he did it uh, to set the, uh, the week for us. So now we see that Satan uh, corrupts Adam and Eve. He, he does the same thing over again. So God starts over and starts over with Adam and Eve. And so we see in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, Adam and Eve were deceived and they fell, but God chose not to wipe us out at that particular time. So in Genesis 6 is the second heavenly rebellion. Genesis 6. It says, When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, the angels, saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful. Now you're going to hear this theory. It's called the Sethite theory. Now the Sethite theory is that the sons of God represented the godly line of Seth says, so the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind. The daughters of mankind was the corrupt, wicked women of Esau. So the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took those uh, uh, whom they chose as wives for themselves. Well, if the sons of God were the godly line of Seth, they weren't godly anymore, were they? If they chose Esau women, wicked Esau women. How could they be called sons of God? They, they rebelled. They were wicked now. They were just like Esau's women because they chose wickedness. So that Sethite theory doesn't make any sense. And it's a Johnny-come-lately doctrine of the past, you know, uh, of the church fathers. It was the Jewish rabbis and sages that believed from the beginning and the very early church fathers still held to this until maybe the 3rd or 4th century, if I'm not mistaken that the sons of God were these angels that lusted after God's creation, after humans, and they chose to leave their heavenly estate. They chose to fall to heaven and to take on these human women, impregnate them, and create what we know as giants, Nephilim. This is where the world gets its mythology from, because you know, you, whether it's Greek mythology, whether it's Scandinavian mythology, it's all the same because all of these other mythologies talk about the gods having sex with human beings and creating these demigods. Who was Hercules? 
He was half man, half God. Who was, who was Thor? He was half man, half God. You know, you have all these, uh, you know, the, these original gods. Then you have the new gods. The new gods were these hybrids between human uh, beings and these fallen angels. And eventually we see that these, the, the, the old gods, which are the original fallen angels, because they rebelled against God, God punished them. And they put them in chains of darkness, as we will see. Uh, and he did away with them. And so these new gods were left behind or fallen angels that didn't participate in the cohabitation with women. They were still around because God had no reason to punish them yet, like he punished the ones that cohabitated with the women. So it says, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of women or the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any of they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years, which means that was the, the, the clock started ticking down to the flood. This clock started ticking down to the destruction of the world one more time. That was the noadic flood. You had the pre-edemic flood. Now you have the noadic flood. They only have 120 years. And then God's going to wipe the slate clean again and start all over with Noah and his family. Verse four, the Nephilim. King James says giants. Christian Standard Bible says Nephilim. The Nephilim, which means the fallen ones. So they were giants. They were these hybrids of the fallen angels and human beings. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. They were the, that, they were the ones that mythology is all about. Mm. Scandinavian, Roman, you. You pick whatever mythology you want. You're going to find the story of Genesis 6 in that mythology. Twisted and tweaked a little bit, but it's pretty much the same story. So that is the, the second rebellion. The, books, the book of Enoch talks about the fallen angels when they fell. They made a pact together on Mount Hermon to say, okay, we're going to make a pact and we're not going to break it. We're going to stick together in our rebellion against God, and we're going to corrupt the human race, that we're going to corrupt the human genome. We're going to impregnate these women and create beings after our own image. And so that's why these Nephilim, they, they, they weren't of earth and they weren't of heaven. They were an abomination. They were a corruption of God's plan and God's created order. So there was no place for them at that moment in the universe. So when they died, they're, they became just disembodied spirits, and they became what we know as demons today. Now, I propose this theory that possibly, because we don't know anything about the pre-Adamic race, maybe even possibly the pre-Adamites, pre maybe their disembodied spirits are also another former league of demons. I don't know. That's just a theory. That's just conjecture. I can't validate or prove that in any way, but it's something to think about. Now, Mount Hermon was the Mount of Transfiguration. So Mount, Mount Hermon became this, this Mount Olympus of the fallen angels. Underneath Mount Hermon was this grotto, this cave, and it's, today it's called the cave or the grotto of Pan. Pan is the god of chaos. And they would make sacrifices, human sacrifices, and throw those human sacrifices in that cave. And it was called not only the grotto of Pan, but it was also called the gates of hell. So when Jesus was transfigured on Mount Hermon, he became a shining one because the angels were called the Neha Elohim, the sons of God. But Jesus Christ is the son of God. 
So he be, so he trans you know he was transfigured he became white as light his clothes became white he was sending a message out to the fallen angel saying you think you're sons of God you think you're the shining ones I'm the son of God I am the shining one I am the light of the world and you guys days are numbered and so and after they come down from the mountain that's when he has an encounter with Peter and the Catholic Church has blown this out of proportion and taken it out of context saying you know because Peter means rock he said upon this rock I will build my church so that's how the Catholics think that Peter became the first Pope because Jesus was pointing to him and saying on this rock on this Peter on this Petros I'm gonna build my church he wasn't saying that he's saying on this rock this mountain I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell which was right <laughs> right below him, the Grotto of Pan, what was also known as the Gates of Hell, and the Gates of Hell will not prevail against it. They were declaring war on the spiritual realm. So, like I said, the book of Enoch talks about the fallen angels making a pact together on Mount Hermon. Now, we see uh, this second rebellion kind of alluded to in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, you are Petros, you are like a rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So in other words, he's giving authority for the structure of what would be the church. Um, basically, what he was saying, he was giving his disciples the permission to form a, what the Jewish people know as a Beit Din. A Beit Din is a house of judgment. And they make rulings based on the five books of Moses to modern day situations and circumstances. So whatever you deem is wrong will be wrong. Whatever you deem is right will be right as long as it's backed up by the five books of Moses. And so that's what this is saying. This is creating what is called halakha, custom and tradition for the people. Uh, okay, they gave, then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And moving on to chapter 17, here's that Mount of Transfiguration that we were talking about. Uh, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John. So this is during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot. Led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, which is the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, basically the entire word of God up to that point, because the New Testament wasn't even written yet, and appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we be here. Let us set up three Sukkahs, three tabernacles, three tents, three shelters, three booths here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's basically saying, well, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, and if they're showing up for tabernacles, every man is required to build a tabernacle for himself, so let's, if they're going to stay, let's party here on this mountain. 
While they were still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Beneha Elohim, <laughs> with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face downward and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. When they looked up, he saw no one except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So this is talking. So the, the first rebellion was Satan being cast out of heaven, and the second rebellion was these fallen angels that decided to cohabitate with women, which Peter and Jude talk about. Peter and Jude talk about these angels leaving their natural state, their natural habitation. Uh, so the third rebellion we find in Genesis 11, and this was at the Tower of Babel. So according to the rabbis and sages, a third angelic rebellion took place. So in Genesis 11, it says the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary as the people migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down and looked over the city and the tower that the humans were building, and the Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Wow, think of unity. We need unity right now in this world. This world is divided, but if we unify in love, think of what we can accomplish. Anyway, come, let us go down there and confuse their languages so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them through the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it was called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the whole earth. So now, Deuteronomy chapter 32 is sort of linked to uh, Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, because once the nations were broken up, they were broken up into 70 root nations. So all the nations of the world, all the ethnicities, all the different dialects and languages originally come from 70 people groups, 70 different languages, 70 different ethnicities. It's called the nations of the world or the table of nations. And so in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, it may not say this in your Bible, but the older manuscripts have what I'm about to say. So in Deuteronomy 32, starting with verse 8, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, talking about Genesis 11, talking about the Tower of Babel, the confusion of the languages, the creation of the 70 nations, when the Lord Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set boundaries for the people according to their number, which was 70. According to the people of Israel, uh-uh, according to the people of Israel. That's a later uh, manuscript. The older manuscript said, according to the number of the sons of God. Now, I think where Israel came in here is that uh, according to the people of Israel, Israel eventually had 70 elders representing judges for the 70 nations. That was the governmental role of the Sanhedrin. And I think that's how it kind of made its way in there. But older manuscript says, according to the sons of God, according to the B'nai Ha Elohim. 
but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. So what we see happening here is once the nations were divided at the Tower of Babel into 70 nations, God said, okay, you angels, I want you to have managerial jurisdiction. There's one angel for each people group. So one angel is going to is going to manage and kind of watch over and look over and kind of rule uh, one people group. Another angel is going to uh, until all 70. So what had happened is that this power went to the sons of God's head. This power went to the angel's head. They all all of a sudden had rulership over a people group, all their very own. And God said, Israel is going to be my portion. Israel is going to be my people. I'm going to be responsible for them. I'm going to look after them. I'm going to watch after them. I'm going to lead, guide, and direct them. So you take care of the 70 nations and manage them, and you report back to me whatever goes on, whatever issues, whatever problems, and we'll work it out or whatever. But that's not what these angels did. They, they, they rebelled against God and ended up becoming false gods to these people. Um... And we see a little bit more about this in Psalm 82. Psalm 82. It says, God stands in the divine assembly and pronounces judgment among the gods. What? I thought there was only one God. Didn't God say that he's God and he alone is God? Where's this other gods? Why is David talking about gods, plural? What is he talking about gods, little g? He's talking about these fallen angels who set themselves up as God. Were, were they not called Beneha Elohim? Elohim means God. It's, it's the plural version of God. So they became gods to the people. They were fallen angels, they were created beings, but the people didn't know that, and they pawned themselves off as gods. So it says, God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods, among the fallen angels, the, among the fallen Beneha Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, where he gave the 70 angels responsibility for the nations, the 70 nations. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. He's saying, I gave you angels responsibility, excuse me, over these nations, and you rebelled against me and became their gods, and you're not even ruling them right and justly. You're leading them away from me. You're allowing them to do wickedness. You're, you're praising the wicked and suppressing the, the good. Verse 5, they do not know or understand. They wander, they wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, you are Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High. You are the Midnei Ha Elohim. You are the angels, you are the sons of God. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. So he's basically saying, you know what? You angels, you fallen angels have a limited time on earth. You have a limited time to corrupt the people. You have a limited time to do your damage, but you're gonna fall and you're gonna die like like men, like human beings. And eventually they did because when they started cohabitating with the women, they started creating these giants, these Nephilim, and they ended up dying. They didn't live forever. And we know that the, these fallen angels are gonna have, a, have an eternal punishment, which the Bible calls a second death, an eternal death. So they are going to die like men. They're gonna be punished just like unrighteous mankind who rejects the Messiah. They're gonna, be, they're gonna die and be punished just like them. 
Rise up, God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So through Israel, God's plan was, even though you had this temporary chaos, you had this temporary situation where these 70 angels were corrupting the 70 nations and pawning themselves off as these false gods, that God says, I'm going to take Israel as my own. So he takes Abraham, and through Abraham's seed, eventually the Messiah comes, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that was going to reverse the effects of the fall. You know, that there was going to be a redeemer, that the seed of the woman was going to crush the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent was going to uh, bite the heel of, of uh, the seed of the woman. And we know that was Jesus on the cross. He was going to bring all nations and all mankind back to himself. He had a master plan to reverse all this wickedness and all the evil that, that Satan and the fallen angels have perpetuated. So, uh, in Second Peter... Second Peter, James, okay, first Peter, second Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world to the ungodly. So, these angels that are spoken about in connection with Noah, these are the angels that fell to Mount Hermon, made a pact with each other, and they were going to cohabitate with these women, creating these giants, these Nephilim. God judged these angels. And Second Peter 2.4 uh, uh, says, he did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell. So these original angels who started cohabitating with women, they're, they're waiting judgment. They're chained up. They're in prison right now. They're in, they're in hell right now waiting the final judgment. But we know it says they were Nephilim in those days and afterwards. There was a second incursion. So it could have been that these, these angels that fell in the third rebellion— Genesis 11, that they took up where these original angels that fell left off, and they started cohabitating with women because the giants ended up coming after the flood because the flood was to wipe out the flood was to wipe out the Nephilim and these fallen angels. And that was the original intent of the flood to protect the, to, to protect the purity of the human genome so that the Messiah could be born through a pure human race, through, through a pure human being, which was the line of Noah through the line of, of Shem onto the Messiah. Uh, okay. Um, now, Revelation 20.10 has this to say. So these angels are, in, are temporary in confinement, the ones who originally fell and originally cohabitated with women. They're in this confinement right now. But it says in uh, Revelation 20.10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and there they will be tormented day and night forever. So eventually, death and hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire. And sometimes they think that, that um, they think that, um, you know, hell and the lake of fire are one and the same. They're, they're two different things. Hell is a temporary holding place, and it's going to be cast into the lake of fire. So these angels that are currently in the lake of fire right now are going to be cast in, or in, um, I'm sorry, they're in hell right now. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire in the end and experience a second death just like all the fallen human beings. Okay, and in Matthew, 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he had come to the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came to meet him, and they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So these are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim from the days of the flood, who they call demons. The Greek word is daemon. They were their familiar spirits, and they know that they're going to be judged. They know that there's no place for them on heaven or, or, or on earth. There's no place. They're in limbo right now, and they're awaiting judgment. And they know that in the end they're going to be judged. So here comes Jesus getting ready to cast them out. He says, wait, 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 wait. Our time's not up yet. Are you going to judge us before the time? Cast us into the pigs instead. So that's what Jesus did. So uh, that was the, the judgment of the Nephilim. All right. So we're just going to wrap it up here. Uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we read about that. So these giants, these Nephilim, once they were wiped out in the flood, their bodies were destroyed. They became what we know as demons, which is different than fallen angels. Now notice how demons and fallen angels are treated differently in the scriptures. When you had the archangel disputing in the book of Jude or in the letter of Jude, disputing over the body of Moses, this angel didn't say, you demon, you foul devil, I command you to leave in Jesus' name. He said, no, 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 we're equal. You're just like me. You're just a fallen angel. May the Lord rebuke you. He had enough sense to say the Lord rebuke you. So these fallen angels are not called demons. They're not called familiar spirits. They're not called unclean spirits. They're called angels. They're just called fallen angels. But these, these Nephilim spirits are called demons, unclean spirits, familiar spirits. And the reason that they want to possess bodies so badly is because way back in the time of Noah, they used to have bodies. They know what it feels like to taste, to touch, to smell, to eat. So they want to inhabit a body so they can experience sex again. They can experience food again. They can experience drunkenness again. They can experience murder and violence again. Whatever sinful addiction that they had in the days of Noah, they no longer have a body to where they can't experience or participate or feel those sins. They can just have sinful thoughts. So that's why they desperately want to inhabit a body and possess a body so they can carry out those sinful desires and wishes. So that's why demons always want to inhabit a body. All right. So does anybody have any questions? No guarantee that I'll be able to answer that. So are you saying that they, to this day, try to possess us? Inhabit us so that they can experience. Right, yeah. Yeah, so that they can taste, feel, touch, have those sensations again, you know, and have the, the feeling of being in a body again. Uh, because which why, it. Which is why we have to wear our armor. Right. <laughs> you know, and so and the scriptures talk about when these demons are cast out, that they go to a dry place, but then they say, you know what, I'm going to go back to my former habitation. And when they go and find it clean and uninhabited, they bring seven more unclean spirits, yeah. more wickeder than themselves, and the person is in a worse off state. Yeah. That's why when a demon is cast out, you've got to replace that void that that demon left with another spirit. And that's the Holy yeah, Spirit, yeah, yeah. right? So that is the first lesson. So this is, uh, we want, I wanted to cover fallen angels and demons and what they were in a nutshell, what the difference were between the two. I wanted to cover the first rebellion, the second rebellion, and the third in, uh, angelic rebellion. So the next lesson, which will kind of wrap up this study, is Nephilim in a, in a nutshell and how the human race was, was corrupted. But not only the human race, but the animal kingdom was corrupted too. And we'll get into that 
uh, you know, next time I, I do this teaching. So did, did that answer a lot of people's questions? Did that make a lot of sense or did I confuse people even more? Well, I only, I'm only a little bit confused about uh, <clears throat> pre-pandemic, you said, right? right. To be before Adam. Right. If God created everything in, in six days and rest about the seventh, so they only, they were only here before Adam or... We have no idea. Well, but... Like Bible says, a day is a day, right? We well, well, I mean, yeah, a day, a day to the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. But we have no idea how long the pre-Adamic Earth existed before it was destroyed. We have no idea how long that they inhabited the Earth before Satan fell. We don't know how much time transpired between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. We have no idea. We don't know about it because it's really not important. I tell people, people say, oh, I don't believe in the pre-Adamic Earth. I said, that's fine. I don't care. It's no big, no skin off my nose. You don't have to believe it because it's not important to our salvation. It's not important to our doctrine, but it does help make a lot of sense to the Bible and to the word of God to help us to understand the laws of God, washing three times and the third time cleansed with fire because God promised after the Noadic flood, I'm not going to flood the world ever again. And Peter said in one of his letters that the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be cleansed by fire. And Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And those Hebrew and Greek words for new heaven and new earth means to be renewed. Doesn't mean brand spanking new. Doesn't mean he's going to annihilate everything and just create and just start all over. He's. It's like it's like you like old cars. It's like getting an old car from a junkyard and restoring it restoring it to its pristine newness the way it was back in the day but yet it pre-existed it was already existed you just rescued it from a junkyard and so that's what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be it's we're going to live on this earth for eternity this very earth we're going to live on for eternity but it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because god is going to refurbish it he's going to re come to live with us yeah and he's going to come to live with us the new jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven yeah. You know, so uh, that's going to be the new heaven and new earth. So that it, it backs up the, the God follows his own law. So it backs up that principle. Can I ask one more question? Yep. The new earth is going to be void of water though, right? Well, it depends on how you interpret that. Because well, the water being, we will drink the water of God. Right. But it's not water as we know it. Well, H2O. yeah, well. That's to be debated because if God is going to return things to the way it was at the beginning, well, there was water in the well, beginning, sure. but it was one landmass, yeah. right? And then you had the Pangea uh, where the, the, the continents broke up and drifted, yeah. and then you had all these different oceans and different seas. Yeah. So, but in the beginning, it was just one landmass. So it could revert back to that state. And also it depends on where you're reading about no sea or no water because sometimes water or sea or oceans is representatory of the abyss. Uh, sometimes it's representatory of people, of the human race. So it really depends on the context. So we'd have to really dig into the context to see what that would happen. I mean, uh, we're going to be eating and drinking in heaven. So I've got, or, you know, on the new heaven and a new earth. So I've got to believe there's going to be water, but maybe just not like we experience or know it today. I thought it was only going to be the living water. Yeah, when well, it could be that too. I mean, that's that's up for for discussion. You know, that's still to be uh, debated. So it really depends on how you translate those passages in Revelation. So does it now? It makes more sense that there was three rebellions instead of one, because the church fathers just lumped all those different rebellions into one. But when but when you look at it from the Jewish standpoint and from the uh, uh, the uh, original church fathers, the first century church fathers who still believe this, those three different rebellions make a lot more sense.
And a lot of people had no idea that when the 70 nations were broken up, that God gave angels responsibility over all those nations, but, but Israel, but one, but his people. And then they rebelled and became the false gods of those nations. So uh, does, does the three rebellions make, make sense and kind of put things in a more clear perspective? Okay. There's not many people by the devil himself. By the devil himself? Well, possessed by the devil, Judas was. Judas was specifically possessed by Satan himself. The only other human being that I think will be possessed by Satan himself is the Antichrist. Mm. That's, that's it. Satan's got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't care about piddly old us. He leaves us to the demons to be possessed by the Nephilim spirits, by the either maybe pre-edemic spirits or these noatic Nephilim spirits. We're, 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 we're nobody on him. Are he doesn't care about us. Soldiers, well, yeah, he commands them because, okay. remember, the scripture says he was cast down to Sheol, which means the grave, which means the underworld. He became the leader of the underworld. So he does control these Nephilim spirits. They are a part of his minion as well as the fallen angels. And if you look at the mythology and the pantheon of these different gods, especially the Canaanite gods, every few centuries— the pantheons changes. The pantheon switches. Why? Because they're jockeying and vying for leadership and vying for position. So even though Satan rules them all, he just lets these other fallen angels fight amongst themselves and, and jockey for position. Because in one century, Baal is the almighty God. In another century, Dagon is the almighty. In another time, Moloch. And then another time, even a, a feminized entity called Ishtar or Inanna. You know, is is you know a chief among the pantheon. So, so there's a division amongst this. Yes, and that's another reason we know Satan is going to lose because Jesus even said himself, "A house divided against itself is going to fall." Yeah. yeah. If Satan is casting out Satan, mm -hmm. how is it going to stand? Well, that's exactly what's happening. Even though Satan's ruling all the fallen angels and ruling all the Nephilim demonic spirits, he's allowing these fallen angels to kind of bicker and fight amongst themselves. He doesn't care, and eventually they're going to fall. You know, so one in one era or one century or one part of the world becomes more prominent than the other. And, and, and it's, it's spelled out in the Greek and Scandinavian mythologies where you have these gods that are always fighting amongst themselves, jockeying for position, and one kills another, one betrays another, and all this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, that's what happens. All right. Uh, any other questions? So the next lesson is going to be pretty intense. We might have to break it up into two sessions. Did everybody enjoy this? Was this okay? I didn't. Okay, good, good. All right, so uh, next week we might just go ahead and, and cover this and get this out of the way. And, and what we're studying now will help us to understand the supernatural, paranormal documentaries from a Christian standpoint that we're watching. And there might be fewer questions after we go through these various lessons. So to, uh, this week was about fallen angels and demons in a nutshell. And uh, next week is going to be Nephilim in a nutshell. So we're going to get, you know, we're going to see how they corrupted the human race, but also corrupted the animal kingdom. So have you ever wondered where centaurs and minotaurs came from? Why the Egyptian hieroglyphs have humans with dog heads or bird heads? That's because the angels weren't just messing, the fallen angels weren't just messing with human genetics. They were, they were messing with animal genetics, and it's happening again today. There's laboratories all over the world. They're mixing human DNA with pig DNA, human DNA with monkey DNA, and all this kind of stuff. And coming up with these hybrids, these abominations, this, mankind has always tried to improve on God's creation, but they end up making it worse. 
And uh, so we'll discuss that next week. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, you know, hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, to go directly back to the source material of all these legends and paranormal and supernatural things, and we can get a good biblical perspective and also glean from the, the Christian history and the Christian writings and the church fathers, but also not leave out the Jewish rabbis and sages and teachers uh, before Christendom because they have a lot of valuable, truthful things to say that we just sadly dismiss or leave out simply because it's not labeled Christian, but it's all talking about the same book. So I think it's very important that we delve in and study both uh, because it was important to the first century believers. They didn't care if it was a Jewish source or a supposed Christian source. They, they gleaned from both. But, you know, as time went on, we kind of walked away from the Jewish aspect. And as a result, we, we ended up becoming more confused. And when we get back to the Jewish source of things, it answers a whole lot of questions. So, Lord, uh, um, help us to absorb this and to assimilate this and to get into a proper context and an understanding in our hearts and minds so that maybe in a future time we can relay it to somebody who asks us. And we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.